Hello, everyone. Welcome back to I See What You're Saying, the Disciplined Listening Podcast. I'm Michael Reddington, and today it is my pleasure to introduce our next guest, Scott Tillema. Scott is a retired SWAT hostage and crisis negotiator with over 20 years of law enforcement experience. He is also an FBI negotiation trainer. He is a highly sought after global keynote speaker, and he is a partner at the Negotiations Collective, an organization that provides bespoke negotiation training engagements for organizations all around the world. Scott has a tremendous wealth of experience. He has fantastic perspectives and he has the great ability to articulate his thoughts and experience in a way that we can apply to all of our conversations. Because thankfully, as he says, most of us will never find ourselves trying to negotiate our way through a hostage situation. But we all find ourselves all too often trying to work our way through a situation where we're talking with somebody who's experiencing their own personal crisis, whether we realize it or not. And so many of the ideas that Scott has to share with us today applies to all of those conversations conversations in our business and personal lives. And I'm really excited to listen to him talk about how important it is to understand and work through the emotions that other people are feeling, the dangers of the words why in you and how to avoid them and other alternatives to use, the power of great questions, and the importance in a lot of these conversations of not just acknowledging the results, but acknowledging the effort that people are putting in as well. This is a great conversation with so many fantastic insights, and I really am excited to share it with everyone. So thank you so much for tuning in to listen to this today. Before we get started, I do want to thank our sponsors. We have Humantel. For everyone who has given any thought at all to learning how to recognize, and we're going to talk about it in this conversation coming up, when people's emotions are changing based on their facial expressions and body language, what that means to their mental state and how that impacts our conversation, then I highly recommend you go to humantel.com and check out all of their self-paced online learning. I've completed all of them myself. I highly recommend it. I vouch for it personally. And if you enter the code INQUASIVE25, you'll receive 25% off all of their online training. Head over to humantel.com and unlock the intelligence that their training provides. Also, please check out certifiedinterviewer.com for the International Association of Interviewers. For all of the professional interviewers or the leaders of interviewing teams who might be listening to this, please head over to certifiedinterviewer.com and check out everything that they have going on there from their online and in-person learning opportunities, the networking opportunities that they have, all the legal and additional resources they have for professional interviewers. And of course, while you're there, please check out the Certified Forensic Interviewer designation to see if that is right for you and your team at this point in your career or leadership journey. And Inquasive, please head over to Inquasive.com to learn more about the programs that we are requested to facilitate by organizations as they ask, ask us to provide their teams with the techniques, skills, and perspectives necessary to encourage people to share sensitive information under vulnerable circumstances in the face of consequences. You can learn all about those training programs at Inquasive.com. Again, I appreciate you tuning in today. Thank you very much. And without further ado, here is Scott Tillema. Good morning, Scott. It is great to see you. I'm very thankful for you taking the time to join us today. How are you? Hey, Mike, what's going on? Glad to be here. I uh, did a little rescheduling here for this interview. Really appreciate your flexibility. Appreciate you taking the time. So what I would love to do is just jump right out of the gate and ask, especially looking at your experience in the hostage 
negotiating field and knowing that you do so much work in the corporate sector currently, what is the biggest, uh, let me ask it this way. What was the most surprising lesson you learned in the field of hostage negotiations that you consistently apply to the work you do with your corporate clients? Yeah, I think this is going to be right on point to your wheelhouse here. Um, I remember back to my first negotiation, it didn't work when I started telling this guy what he should be doing, that he should let this woman go, that he should put the gun down. And it was my belief, look, I am on a SWAT team. I am a hostage negotiator. I'm a police officer. I'm going to tell you what to do. And generally, that's what is going to happen. Um, but to probably nobody's surprise, um, he didn't say, hey, that's a great idea. Let's do that. Um, so I realized that I needed to slow things down and work to understand what is the problem? What what are we trying to solve here? And that comes through listening to somebody, not just talking at them. And in the business world, now that I'm out of law enforcement and into the uh, private sector, what we teach people is that if you want influence, that comes from connection. And if you want connection, that comes from a dialogue where we're talking and listening. And so often you have people come in with these big pitch decks, and they're just going to tell you about their product or service and on and on. And, and they have no idea who's on the other side of the table. They don't know what their concerns are because they're not asking questions. And they feel that the more data, the more charts, the more graphs they have to show somebody, the more effective they're going to be when I think really that's just the opposite. So I, I'm, that's what gets me excited about meeting with you and uh, having studied your work and being on the podcast here today. I appreciate you taking the time to study. And man, yeah, you are speaking my language from getting rid of the pitch decks to turning perceived control over the conversation to the people we're dialoguing with. So they're more relaxed. We make the connection so much from there. And for me, selfishly, I love to hear you say that one of the early lessons you learned in those situations was to slow down. Because, well, hand up for people who may be wondering, I've never done a hostage negotiation. Hopefully I never have to do one because it's not my profession and something went wrong in my day if I get stuck in that situation. Right. That's right. <laughs> um, but I would imagine that for most of us, when we get into high stress situations, the tendency is to rush into it because the sooner I can get this solved, the sooner the stress goes away, the sooner I can return to my normal state. And I imagine for many of the people involved in a hostage type situation, stress levels are running high. So to hear you say that one of the more productive things you could do was to actually slow down, assess, build a connection and start working your way to a better resolution. Hopefully people caught that and understand what a pivotal approach that can be, I'm assuming, in a lot of stressful situations. For sure. I, I think having that awareness of how you are under pressure. How do I function? How do I speak? How do I, how do I get through when the pressure is on? And a lot of people struggle with this because they don't like being uncomfortable. So they either avoid it and don't have these conversations or they, they try and get in and out as quickly as possible. And a couple of things happen. They, they don't have the self-awareness. So they're not managing themselves. They, they, they don't have the, realization of their person effect. I know how I think I'm showing up, but how is that being received from somebody else? And I have seen doing uh, reality-based training scenarios with law enforcement and with people in business. One of the first things that's going to disappear is their awareness of their delivery, not so much of what they're saying, but how they're saying it. 
that's going to go. And we we don't take time to thoughtfully listen. Our our questions are poor unless we've prepared that ahead of time. I coach people that you should have a list of 10 or 12 questions in advance that you have ready to go that you can fire out at any time because when the pressure's on, we're a little bit less creative. Our, our mind can't go to places where we want it to go. And I think the best negotiators are the ones who believe that it's possible. They're very positive and they may not know the way to get there yet, but I believe that there's a way. So we're going to continue to explore that. So let's ask good questions. Let's be mindful of how we're delivering that message. Certainly be aware of, of the nonverbals. And we'll get into that, the body language, the, the, the posture, the facial expressions, the gestures. I, I think we communicate so much more with that than we do with our, our words. So there, there's so much here. And sometimes I'll get criticized by people saying, you know what, we're, we're getting kind of into the specifics or aren't we splitting hairs here? And my thought is, if I am doing the work of a police SWAT negotiator, every word matters. How I say every word matters. When I say every word matters. And we've had people that have had re really negative reactions to one specific word. You can be positive. Everything is good for three hours, but one little thing trips them up and we have such uh, uh, we lose so much ground. So how important can it be to be so focused on communicating correctly and getting the outcome that we're looking for, whether it be in SWAT or business? I think that's what we're all looking for. We're all looking for good outcomes to get what we want. So many great points. Again, I'm a firm believer that success in a lot of stressful conversations comes down to variable management. Those who can manage the variables better tend to control their stress level. So your point about preparing those 10 to 12 questions in advance, you don't have to think about them up front. Fantastic idea. Hopefully people are taking note of that. And then every word matters for the people who might critique that and say, well, aren't we getting a little bit too deep in the weeds here? Isn't the outcome worth it? So if I'm potentially one slip up away, if I'm potentially one uh, misconstrued delivery away, that could divert a very important outcome, whether it's in a relationship, whether it is for business, all of the above, that really is so important. And I'm curious to your thoughts on this. I believe that a lot of times, especially in business, probably in our personal lives too, people don't necessarily realize or think about how our audiences are I'm going to say often, that might be a bit of a stretch, often looking for a reason to disagree with us. They're often looking for a reason not to comply with us. They're all often looking for a reason to reaffirm what they already want to think or do. So with that one word or that one phrase or an incorrect posture or standing too close or some of these things can trigger what they've been wanting to do that we didn't realize. Yeah. And, and they may not know what inside them is causing that reactant, that wall that's going up, that desire to say, no, they're not sure what it is and they're fishing around. So we're, we may be having the wrong conversation. They disagree with something we're, we're saying and, and we get hung up on a word or, or the phrasing. We're not getting to the substance of it. What is the hang up here? Let's get into that psychology and, and start exploring. And if they're not talking to you, how are you going to understand what the problem is? I think strongly your power in information or your power in negotiation comes from information and options. Yes, tactics at the table is important and we can talk about the delivery, but your power is information and options. And how are you going to get that 
if you're doing all the talking and you're not paying attention to what the other side is saying. Amen. To, to I don't want to harp too much on the hostage negotiation piece just because I've never done it. So I don't want to come across yeah. as somebody who's just prying into something that it's, oh, not, it's, it's certainly not my experience. But I've heard you speak before and talk about, you know, really how crisis resolution and safely resolving crisis and transitioning those skills and techniques to the negotiation table, to the business world and beyond. So we've already talked a little bit about having options in the preparation and listening and self-control. But could, I would be grateful if you could walk us through some of your top techniques for resolving crisis that transition into more of our everyday business conversations. Yeah, we, we could do an eight-hour class on this question alone right now. So I think that, first of all, it should be noted that police hostage negotiators are much it's much more accurate to say we're crisis negotiators. I think the latest data from the FBI shows 97% of these negotiations are with a, a single individual in crisis. So they're a crisis meeting that is one person rather than a hostage where there's multiple people involved. It's not international hostage taking, kidnap and ransom or purposeful hostage taking. We just don't see a lot of that in the United States, thankfully. We're dealing with a single person in crisis 97% of the time by the statistics. That means that they are not purpose-driven. They are emotional-driven. So if you think that the person you are talking with is going to be making decisions based on logic and reason, you're wrong. Stop with that. I don't need to hear any more arguments about how smart you are or what the data says. That's not how people make decisions. Now, Ultimately, I might justify that decision with logic and data and graphs so I can feel smart, look smart, but I'm making decisions based on emotion, and so is nearly every listener to this podcast right now. So if we are not tuned into emotion, we are missing the entire piece of connecting with somebody else. So let's get into how are people making decisions. I love the field of behavioral economics. If this is something that people are not familiar with, check it out. It's a whole field on how people make decisions. And when we're working with our corporate clients, we really dig down on four areas of decision-making. And uh, this is fairness, empathy, uh, autonomy, and recognition. And I really want to point out these four areas, particularly if you're getting a hard time from somebody, which one of these four things is not being attended to or has been triggered. So we can get into these if you'd like to kind of break them down real briefly. Um, so people want to be treated fairly. And when people are feel that they are being treated unfairly, they will make decisions even against their own best self-interest. And I want you to hear that again. When we feel we're being treated unfairly, we make decisions against our best self-interest. And we will do uh, in, in our workshops, we'll do these uh, role play scenarios with the class and they will see a majority of people completely unaware of it are doing exactly this and demonstrating that, hey, I felt this was unfair. So I'm going to take a stand and take a position because I'm not going to allow this. And then we just see in their minds them go, oh, oh boy, I, I am making a bad decision here. Why was that? So I want to challenge people to say the question isn't, am I being treated fairly or is this fair, this outcome or agreement fair? The question is, is this acceptable? Because, you know, there, there were situations where 
you know, you, you feel this, this isn't fair. It isn't right, but you might not be able to change that. Can I be all upset that it's not fair? Sure. I can be upset, but is this okay? Sure. This is okay. And then that, that's the, the question we need to look at. Um, because I mean, are we a bunch of six-year-olds and some of the psychologists are going to say, yes, we are. Absolutely. We are. So understanding how fairness kind of gets in our way and clouds our judgment is a, a big awareness piece. Um, empathy is another big driver of human behavior that I think has really grown over the last two decades or so, particularly with the rise of social media. People feel a little bit more important than they might actually be. And this you know is demonstrated. <laughs> do you know this person that puts on their social media stories, their Instagram story? Here's what I'm having for breakfast. And here's the spoon I'm going to use. And here's a picture out the window. And here's the temperature where I'm at. Nobody cares. But yet we feel that this need that, hey, I am the center of attention. And now we translate this into the professional space. When we aren't the center of attention, we start to feel a little bit upset. We start to feel, you know, a, a a bit triggered, not that everybody's narcissist, but I think that at least in our society, the individualistic person is much more emphasized over the collective that maybe we'll see in uh, Japan or perhaps other cultures or historically, uh, maybe more in the US. But also there's a real purpose for digging into this empathy piece to see the situation as they see it. If I'm negotiating with somebody, they want something. There is a reason they're at the table with me. If they could just go do what they wanted, they wouldn't need me. They wouldn't be having a conversation with me. So there's a reason we're having this conversation. And my belief strongly is there is pain somewhere. Where is their pain? What is the problem that we need to solve? So if you're a leader, this applies to you. If you're in sales, this applies to you. If you're in marketing, this applies to you. What is your partner's pain? What problem are you solving? So this is the empathy piece. And we do that by being a, a great listener and asking good questions. Um, autonomy, we feel, is really rising. Um, way back when um, authority was shown to be one of the big drivers of influence and in human behavior, and I feel strongly that is falling away very rapidly, even in the last couple of years, that we've lost a lot of our freedoms that we used to have during the pandemic, that we couldn't travel, we couldn't go to the restaurant, we couldn't go to school. We all There were a lot more restrictions. Um, that we weren't used to ever for anybody in this generation. So we lost our freedom to go do what we want. And people are starting to push back on that a little bit. So are we giving people the freedom to choose what they want to do? And especially if we're going into a situation where I need follow through, I want you to choose that step we're going to take because how much easier is it going to be for me to say, hey, I made this decision. Now I'm going to go take the steps to support it rather than, hey, Mike told me to do it. So now I have to go do this thing and I'm going to begrudgingly do this. And at every chance I get, I'm going to do poorly at it, deliver it late, deliver it wrong. And uh, it's not me. And then the last one is recognition. Are we recognizing people the way that they want to be recognized? And whether or not we want to acknowledge it, I think all of us like a little bit of recognition in our own way. Um, I know my father would, and I, I love my father. I would love everybody on your, all your listeners right now to give him a big standing ovation when I bring him on camera here and introduce him. 
And then you would see the end of Scott very, very quickly. He doesn't want to be on camera. He doesn't want to be on stage. He wants to be in front of nobody. But that doesn't mean that he doesn't want to be recognized for, for being a great person or, or being a great father or being a, a great husband. People just like to be recognized in the way that they like to see it. And um, one of the things that that really stood out to me was there was uh, uh, Oprah Winfrey was talking about how she's interviewed all these tens of thousands of people from the president to the regular person. And she was asked, you know, do these people have anything in common? What, what do they all have in common? And her answer was they all would always ask her at the end, was that okay? You know, was, was this okay? How was that interview? And what they're doing is they're seeking validation and acknowledgement and appreciation, some recognition for what they did in both the results and then the effort to get those results, which is sometimes very different for a lot of people. It's, it's easy for some people to get results. Some people have to spend years to get those same results. So let's acknowledge and recognize both the outcome and the process that they went through to get there. So that's fairness, empathy, autonomy, recognition. If you want to drive people's behavior, let's begin with emotion and understand how we're making decisions and get deep into the human psyche. Man, I love all of that. Thank you for taking the time to break it down. But I also know that that was like the four million foot level, breaking all of those down briefly for yep. us. So thank you very much for that. And again, so much value in there. What people perceive to be fair is different. How people perceive that they're being emphasized, empathized with, excuse me, is different. And even that recognition piece, I think sometimes with organizations that I've worked with, People can struggle to show people recognition, to your point, for how they want to be recognized or what they think they should be recognized for. Well, I pay that person to do that job. You're right. You do recognize them for it. I do with the paycheck. Well, they probably don't think about it that way. So let's recognize them for that and recognizing the effort as well. And that effort sometimes could be physical, emotional, cognitive. They had to go through a series of potentially trials or difficult decisions to get to where they are. So recognizing that as well is extremely important. I was taking notes as you were saying that. I, I like that a lot. Well, and, and give them something extra. You know, we, we, talk about paycheck. Hey, you get paid well. And in fact, that's true. But I know a lot of studies show that your pay, your compensation is not really a motivating factor. But if you give someone something extra, that's totally different, particularly if it's unexpected. And, and I have this, and it's, this is going to seem very trivial and very silly, but um, as a keynote speaker, I get paid pretty well. And some of these checks are five digits for a keynote. One of my agents who books me will send along with that paycheck, which is sizable, a $5 Starbucks gift card. And listen, I think that's awesome. I mean, what percentage of that is that check? It's like zero. I mean, what's an extra five bucks if you added it to the check? Nothing. But here is a standalone $5 Starbucks gift card just as a, hey, thanks, it was unexpected. It was something extra. And then I felt that recognition and appreciation. And cognitively, it makes no sense at all. It's not moving the needle in the Tillema finances. It's not. But it makes me feel good. And how do we make decisions? Because we feel good. And I can't wait to book with that person the very next time. So are we recognizing, giving them that unexpected thing that's a little bit extra in a way that they say, hey, very, very cool. It's a great example is likely what that gift card represents is you made them look good. So here's the check for doing what you were paid to do. Congratulations. You fulfilled the contract. 
but you made me look good. So here's a little extra thank you for me for making me look good, which makes you not only want to do business, but make them look good again as you continue to keep that business partnership moving. So that's, that's a great example. For sure. But then let's take the opposite of that. When that is absent. Um, recently, and, and I'll just leave it very broadly, um, I was invited uh, to give a virtual presentation for a group um, in the in the public sector. So I said I I, I do it without cost, and uh, I I believed in what they were doing. So um, I did that for them, and uh, the event started at half past the hour. So they said, make sure you sign on at you know fifteen minutes early, so you can get all the tech check and everything works right. So I get on fifteen minutes early, and there there isn't a person that says hello. There's four people on there. I don't know who they are. I don't know if the host of the, of the whatever it is. No, nobody says hello. Nobody acknowledges I'm in the room. Okay. So we start it. And then, you know, I give the presentation as part of the program. The, uh, the person who invited me to do this didn't get an acknowledgement or a hello at any point during the call. And afterwards, um, after doing this at no cost for this group, didn't get a, a follow-up email. Thank you. Text message, just, just an acknowledgement or appreciation. Hey, even, even if I was getting paid, it's nice to get that follow. Hey, thank you for this. Appreciate the effort, appreciate zero. So you remember these moments. Um, and maybe this goes back, ties into that fairness piece. Hey, I'm I'm giving you something that is of value to your group and it's and it's not recognized. Man, you remember these. And these are all emotional drivers. And at, at the end of the day, I'm I'm no worse off because of it. I brought value to the group because I wanted to. So um that's why I was there. But also, we are dealing with people. You will never negotiate with a company. You will negotiate with a person who represents a company 100% of the time. And maybe I'll be wrong. 20, 30 years, everything's AI and all, and we're all just zombies staring off into space. Well, robots make all the decisions, but uh, we'll deal with that when we get there. <laughs> Hopefully, they found us a way to get us to another planet so we can still have right. a human experience <laughs> by, the, right. by the time we get there. Um, all great points. And, and to kind of wrap that up, yes, you did something for a group that you believed in that made them better. And also it makes you better for doing it. I've done similar things. Um, but the least somebody could do is say hello and thank you. Like, I'm, I'm not asking you for much. <laughs> like, right. A little bit of respect in return would be appreciated. Sure. When you were going through the four areas to address in negotiation or, or crisis, I should say, negotiation, um, just kind of as a throw in, you were talking about the importance of asking questions and listening. So I'd like to get back to asking questions for a, a moment. When we're asking questions in a, emo, I almost said crisis, but really an emotional situation, what are your guidelines for how to successfully extract important information from people with questions when they're highly emotional? Yeah, um, uh, allow them to express some of that emotion. Um, sometimes I'm asked, Hey, how do you manage somebody when they're at a, you know, a rouse state, they're a little bit excited. They're a little bit emotional. I was like, let them burn that off because some people try to take control of that interview. And, and I spent many years as a detective doing interview interrogation. So this is just very, very similar to doing crisis negotiation. You're dealing with a person and you see people who come in, Hey, you need to settle down. You, you can't, you can't act like this. We, we got to keep it professional. Uh, an emotion or a desire that's not expressed is not going to go away. That's still going to be there. And, and if we can't allow them to get that out, 
that that's still going to be burning. And then they're going to be maybe a bit resentful of you. So I'm comfortable with somebody who might be highly emotional. And I know that not everybody um, may have that level of comfort, but as long as I'm not physically unsafe, and for the most part, that's not the case, um, I'm okay with that. But we come in and questions there. It's one of many skills of being a good listener, but we have to understand that nobody likes to be interrogated. And I found that out very quickly as a detective. I'm firing a question. I fire another question, fire another question. People don't like that. And then it actually has the opposite effect of creating a dialogue and it's going to shut somebody down because i that's the fifth question you asked me in a row. This isn't normal communication. So are we mixing in communication? Are we acknowledging the emotions? Am I willing to answer some questions. I mean, this is basic reciprocity here. You got to ask me some questions. I get to ask you some questions. And this is much more conversational because ultimately I need to get you comfortable. And the more comfortable you are, the the more that guard is going to come down. And now I'm going to get to the real information. And I think questions should probably be prepared specifically for that person or for that situation. But th there are some probably pretty good rules of thumb. and. Um, one of my basic principles is always work to understand, always work to understand what's going on. So if I tell somebody, hey, I want you to try and figure out what's going on with me and my behavior, the very first question they come up with is why? Hey, why are you doing this? Why are you saying this? Why are you acting like that? And the word why I have found creates defensiveness in other people. And for your listeners who are out there going, I don't get it. The next time your boss calls you into his or her office and begins a conversation with, hey, Mike, um, hey, I just want to ask you, why did you record this podcast with Scott? All of a sudden, you feel like you have to justify what you did or didn't do because of that magic little word, why? And you're going to feel your heart race, your palms get sweaty, or whatever physical reaction you have. Um, and I don't want to create defensiveness. I don't want to shut down the conversation. We can ask that same question without using that word. You know, that's interesting. What makes you say that? That's interesting. What, what makes you ask that? Hey, that's cool. What, what makes you do that? Or, or, you know, around this, you're, you're essentially asking the same information without that little piece that might get them to think, hey, I'm being judged. I'm being questioned uh, around my behavior. Or qualifying the questions is sometimes important. And um, a great example of this is um, sometimes in my law enforcement work, I'd have to have people sign um, a, a criminal complaint or some legal documents. And one of the questions we might have to ask them is, you know, have you been drinking? Because it's important and probably lawfully relevant that the person who is signing a legal document isn't under the influence of drugs, alcohol, and is in a somewhat good mental state. Um, however, I've found that if you go up to people and ask, hey, Mike, have you been drinking? There might be a bit of defensiveness here because that's associated with a judgment of, am I slurring my words? Am I acting like a fool? Did I fall off the chair? Why would you feel the need to ask me this particular question? So, hey, Mike, have you been drinking? And the reason I have to ask you this question is because you're about to sign an important legal piece of paper. And before you do that, I just need to make sure that you're not under the influence of drugs, alcohol, or anything else. All of a sudden, it becomes a very manageable question as a matter of fact that you're willing to answer without a bit of suspicion. So if you got to ask questions that might trigger some suspicion, give it a little qualification up front, and people are going to be much more willing to go with your program. Um, 
I wish I could bring you with me on the road. I probably enjoy hanging out with you, to be honest, but just hearing you echo so many important things from your perspective, I hope people are taking note of the importance of making people comfortable, not rising the defenses. I hope they're taking note of little things like qualifying the question. That why one is so important. People get defensive when they say why. One of my favorite post-confession questions to ask somebody was often, especially because I did more like fraud and white collar and theft and stuff like that. So there were pattern crimes. So often I would support the first confession by saying something along the lines of thank you. That's a great place to start to let them know that you know, we're not, we're mm. not done. Yeah. Um, and then after that, one of my next questions would be along the lines of what made you feel it was necessary so I'm allowing them to blame it on their motivation. They don't have to accept that emotional responsibility for their decision at this point in the conversation because of what you said, that conveys judgment. So avoiding the word why, even avoiding the word you sometimes, that word you, mm. why you, why you, why it's like that one-two punch of judgment that can get people on their heels and defensive. So, so many great lessons there. I appreciate that and really just want to drive home making people feel more comfortable to give you the information you need to achieve the outcomes you desire. And you're framing this around people in crisis or emotional situations. My bias, I believe a lot of times leaders, maybe even parents, business professionals don't realize that they could be dealing with somebody in their own momentary emotional crisis. It might not be something as big or as obvious, but in their own world, it could be. And they're still going to be experiencing the same things that you're referencing. A hundred percent. That's why this is a relevant training for anybody who is thinking about improving their lives. It's not just education that you need until five o'clock during the day. I would, I would propose that this is just as relevant, if not more to your personal life and your relationships with the people that you love the most. And, and how often do we just, we, we feel the need to develop our, our skills at work, but do we develop our skills as a person in our homes with, with our friends, with our family? And the answer is often no, because there's no consequence to bad behavior. There's no consequence to, um, not being as good as you could. And we use the excuse, well, I'm tired, you know, I, and, and I know that's true. I, I, I work hard. A lot of people work hard. Um, but are we really considering the question of what's most important to us? And, and are we putting in the effort to show up as our very best selves in these conversations with the people that we love most? And the, the greatest gift you can give somebody is just being there and listening to them when they have something they want to share. And it's just horrible when you're dismissed or nobody's got time for you. In, in your most important relationships. So I think that's why I'm I'm really interested in in your work and and not that uh I, I want to take over this interview here, but I want to I want to get into listening with you because um at the the foundational piece of hostage crisis negotiation, the gold standard is the FBI behavioral change stairway model. And this has been around for 30 years and this is widely accepted as the standard format of how you go about negotiations. Now I was trained by the FBI. I still teach classes for the FBI, but I'm not an FBI agent. I never was, which allows me the freedom to say, I don't necessarily agree with this model as um, what we need now in 2024 and moving forward as a guide for negotiations. And this particular model, FBI behavioral change model, starts with active listening. 
And I know that this is an absolute foundational piece for every negotiations class. I know the FBI book because I'm still teaching their class even this year and spend so much time around active listening. And that was probably the biggest surprise when I went to the class because I was thinking they were going to teach me the magic phrase. We can tell anybody to make them do whatever we want, but guess what? We're going to learn how to listen. But I've trained negotiators. I've done training with them coast to coast, thousands of police negotiators. And I never, ever get over how few of them can actually tell you or demonstrate the skills of active listening. And this is a foundational piece. But now, um, as I am doing my own classes, my own training, uh, really exercising my own thought leadership uh, in this field, um, I think that it's such a small piece of what really needs to be happening in these conversations and in these connections. So as I pick up your book, and if, you're, if your listeners don't have it, you're missing out, get this book. Um, how excited was I to start, at, you, you dive right into it in the very beginning of your book to say the active listening skills are inadequate for what we are really trying to accomplish. And I fully agree. And that's going to be a big central part of my book that I'm finally starting to work on now that I'm out of law enforcement. Hopefully it'll be coming soon. Um, but I think it's going to be very much aligned with what you teach in the the discipline listening method. Um, so, so let's get into this because if you talk to a hostage crisis negotiator, they're going to pound more pies, more pies, eight skills of active listening. This is what we have to do. Young people are not good at communicating and listening. This is a terrific place to start, but it's just the beginning. And, and I teach this in my classes. We have to start here, get this. It's, it's an acknowledgement that, that we're being attentive, but it's just the beginning. And a lot of people don't even know this. So what do, what do you think here? Let's, let's get into this. Oh, congratulations on writing the book. I'm stoked. I can't wait to read it when it finally comes out. I appreciate it. And thanks for mentioning mine, of course. I appreciate it. But I'm stoked for yours. Um, clearly, I'm in agreement with everything that you just said. And I, the key word that I believe came out there at the end was active listening is good for showing that we're attentive. And a couple of things can can happen with that. And I don't have my wife's permission to talk about this. So when she listens to this episode, we'll figure out how it goes or not. But there were times early in our relationship where I was listening to her as intently as possible because I was, I'd essentially shut down all other function so I could clearly focus on what she was saying. So with that, my facial expressions were gone. And now she starts telling me, well, clearly you don't care. You're staring a hole through my head. And I'm like, ah, no, this is actually when I'm listening more intently than maybe any other person on the planet. So I had to kind of get back to recognizing the importance of some of these basic attentive listening cues so people feel like they're being welcomed into the conversation. They're important. I would come back by saying, okay, so what? So I look like I'm intently listening to you, but if I'm talking to myself, if I have a preordained choice that I'm going to make anyway, if I can't interact with you in a meaningful way, then what does it matter and I'm sure that you have examples from this in your career as well. How many times were we listening to somebody in order to find that hidden value, that unsolicited, like what's hidden beneath? I guess probably the easiest way to say it is listening between the lines, which I'm sure sounds cheesy, but picking up on patterns, whether it's changes in their speed of delivery, tone of voice, volume, nonverbals associated with certain words or um, 
statements. But putting that pattern together over time to realize, oh, wait a minute, here's what I think the issue really is. And now they don't have to say it. And because they don't have to say it, they don't have to risk the embarrassment. They don't have to risk the judgment. And now when we can connect with it, our perception, their perception, excuse me, of our empathy and our understanding and our credibility skyrockets because we're they're sitting there feeling like, oh, Scott gets me. Scott understands me. So it's that listening with the purpose, taking in the totality of the available observation, building the patterns within what we're listening, what we're observing, and then checking that with our situational awareness and our experience. So for you in law enforcement, now, how many people did you interview and interrogate over your career? You probably couldn't put a number on it if you tried, just based on all the conversations that you've had. But over time, we start developing mental models for why people are typically talking, thinking, acting in a certain set of contextual circumstances. That helps keep you safe. That helps resolve problems quicker. It helps establish bonds. I'm more impressed with the two books over your left shoulder no, that'd be your right shoulder, my left shoulder, George Kohlreiser's books oh. and his work on attachment theory and, and oh so much gosh. of the work that, that he does that applies there as well. So now I'm rambling and you can take over this interview if you want, man. I'm happy for this to be a conversation. But for me, you talked about purposeful earlier. If we're not listening for a purpose, if we don't have that outcome orientation, if we're not trying to find the hidden value and not just play on the surface then people are going to feel like they're being interrogated, they're being sold, they're being played, there is an angle somewhere, and we're going to fall short of the potential we could achieve. That's it. That's it. Awesome. I, I, I love listening to you talk on this. Um, so you had mentioned, uh, George, uh, for your listeners who may not know uh, George Cole Reeser, there are a lot of people in the negotiation space broadly. Um, and, and George is one of them. He's old school. Like he did negotiations in the U S before it was even a thing. His background is he's a psychologist and he's currently a professor of leadership at IMD business school in Lausanne, Switzerland and full stop. There is no other person, um, no other person that has had more impact on how I approach negotiations than George full stop. And, and I've read a lot of books, been in a lot of seminars, uh, learned from a lot of different people. George is the guy. So if you, if the concepts of bonding and connection are making sense, um, get st start studying George's books, uh, his hostage at the table. He's got a couple Ted talks out there and he teaches uh, a course, high performance leadership, executive education, one of the top executive education programs for leadership in the world. Um, my time that I've spent with George and I've been fortunate to spend a lot of time in person with him, um, has been remarkable and absolutely changed the course of my life. So, um, a, a big plug for him and his work for your listeners, check out George, get into him. He is, uh, just awesome. So thanks for, for catching that and, and allowing me to share that piece just because he's truly been that important in, in my world. Um, and, and hopefully to anybody else that, uh, he's touched, they would tell you the, the very, very same thing.
Yeah, I've yet to meet him. I'm a giant proponent of his work. Hosh's Table is a great book. I feel like um, Care to Dare is the single best leadership book I've ever read. And it's honestly not even close. And it's one that a lot of people aren't aware of because it doesn't get the marketing or the promotion that that a lot of the other more popular titles do. But d- dive into his TED Talks, dive into his work if people aren't familiar with it. Um, he's got the experience. He's got the research. It all comes together. It's by all means, if you're going to read one person, that's where you got to start. Cool. Love it. Um, so you are getting into a little bit of the the visuals and and what we see versus what we hear. People need to feel that they've connected with us. They have to feel that there's a connection. And we'll do listening exercises in my workshops to demonstrate those pieces. But then we'll do uh, uh, exercises to demonstrate the absence of those pieces just to allow them to experience this for short periods of time. And it's probably one of the most fun exercises that we do because it's comical when I say, I need you to be a bad listener and we'll have fun. What are the skills of being a bad listener? And then we actually do it and, and it's hilarious. But every person, almost always, every person in the room will say, I experience this all the time. And they've got somebody in mind or, or a couple somebody's in mind. And I say, yes, we all do. But when are we the offenders of this? When are we the offenders of the bad listening habits? And it doesn't take much. The, the glance at the phone or the watch or looking over, checking the computer or whatever it might be. And how damaging can that be? So I'll, I'll do other exercises where I'll do a dichotomy of a difference between what we see and what we hear. And we'll ask people, you know, what do you believe here? When there's a difference, we, we have this, uh, the, the competing beliefs in, in our brain, we can't hold two competing beliefs. So what do you believe? What we see, what we hear. And they'll say, well, I, I believe what I see. And I, I think that's true. We default to what we see. So we spend all this time teaching active listening skills and practicing this. The negotiations from 1972 and the last five, 50 years in law enforcement traditionally have been done by phone. It's safer. It's just how we do business. Okay. Then this is really critical. If the FBI and the, the rest of the negotiation training space doesn't acknowledge that communication has changed tremendously in the last couple of years, that we can do video chats before covid I maybe a couple times did a Skype, but I figured this is some international person. Why am I doing a Skype? And now how many professionals are spending their whole lives on Zoom doing video chats? This is the norm. My 10-year-old spends her whole life on video chats. She in a day spends more time on camera than I did my first 20 years of existence. So this is how people communicate. And if we're stuck with the eight skills of active listening just on the phone with no awareness of what we see how far behind are we falling in these conversations when somebody says, hey, we're going to be doing a video chat versus, hey, I'm teaching you how to negotiate on the phone. And business is done like this all the time. People are on these Zoom chats all the time. They're doing in-person um, negotiations all the time. So why aren't we training for this? And and for a lot of people, it's natural and, and it they're aware of this and they're pretty good at this, not only managing their own nonverbals, but studying the person across from them. But how many people are blissfully unaware how much information they're leaking in their nonverbals and how much more powerful they could be if they start locking down not just the listening piece, but what I'm conveying nonverbally? 
Amen. And it's how many are blissfully unaware or how many are blissfully married to inaccurate myths and assumptions that are driving their decisions based on single observations while missing the context of the situation. When I was teaching interrogation, one of my favorite videos to teach was one of my teammates, Chris's interrogation, which to this day, I will say I'm not jealous about because he and I were we were both out of town. We were flying back into Chicago. Whoever gets to O'Hare first gets the interrogation. He beat me by 15 minutes. So we prepared the way I believe all professional interrogators do. The place he had to go was out by the airport. So we went to the Giordano's that's over there by O'Hare, got a room at the Marriott. Awesome. And we had deep dish pizza and Sam Adams while we prepared for our video, for our interrogation the next day. Chris got it. He does an amazing job. Ends up getting a quarter million dollar confession from a guy, travel expense fraud, senior executive. He does an amazing interrogation. Um, but d when the guy confesses, like as he's about to confess, he's sitting in a chair and the whole time he's listening to Chris, he's kind of cocked back with his left shoulder over the chair, his arm kind of back. He's looking at Chris over his shoulder and he has one, I think it's his right leg, one of his legs tucked up underneath the chair. Like, so he's up on his toes with his heel up in the air, tucked under the chair. And as Chris asks him, when was the first time you took money from the company? He turns, his shoulders are now perpendicular to Chris. He gives this giant exhale, bobs his head. His foot that was under the chair comes out. So now both his feet are flat on the ground, pointed at Chris, and he crosses his arms. Everything that that guy just did says, I'm going to confess. 100% of that behavioral cluster says, I'm going to confess. Obviously, I'm teaching it. I know it comes up. I keep my hand on the pause button because weekly, as soon as somebody would see him cross his arms, they would say, you lost him. Mm -hmm. And because I have a con um, an affliction, I would pause the video and say, do you have your wallet on you? Would you like to wager on what happens next? Not only does he confess, but I kid you not, Scott, the first words out of his mouth, and this is a senior executive for an international sales organization, says, Chris, thank you. I can trust you. And then goes on to confess to a quarter million dollars worth of travel expense fraud. And people see that and they, they're trying to reconcile. Well, wait, he crossed his arms, but he said, I trust you. And he confessed. Well, single, single factor decisions are deadly. And you're making that decision off of one behavior, the arms cross, which by the way, is signaling emotional vulnerability. And you missed all of the other capitulation behavior that says that emotional vulnerability is related to, I'm finally going to tell somebody the truth for the first time on this subject in my entire life. So whether we are unaware or whether we are falling prey to the myths that we've been taught, yes, education is important. And yes, practice is important. I also really believe, and I'd love your thoughts on this, especially where you talked about preparing those 10 or 12 questions in advance. It's really hard for me to focus on what somebody else is saying and doing if I'm worried about what I'm saying and doing. So the more variables I can address in a stress-free environment before the conversation starts, the more I can put what I'm doing on autopilot and the more I can focus on what somebody else is doing. So one time when I was observing an interrogation in the sheriff's department, not very far from where you are right now, for a woman who was suspected of a string of burglaries, DA didn't have enough to prosecute, but really wanted to. So they call her back in. She volunteers. She comes in. It was the first time in my life I got to play the law and order person standing behind the mirror watching. 
in one of her answers, she said the woman being interviewed said she. And as soon as she said, and the, the interrogator didn't catch it. And I don't fault the interrogator because he's juggling 15 flaming chainsaws right now. So I don't blame yep. him for not catching it. I look at the guy next to me and I was like, we got the wrong person. See, what do you mean? Like, does she have a daughter? Yes. How old? Teenager. This woman has drug problems. Does the daughter have drug problems? Yes. But I'm a betting man. It's not her that's breaking in. It's the daughter because it's the same neighborhood. And if it's not the daughter, maybe it's an associate, but it's not her. How do you know? When she gave the excuse, the excuse was framed around she. It wasn't I wouldn't do it. It was she wouldn't do it. You got to pull that guy out. You know, we got to regroup and come up with a new strategy here. But oftentimes, if we're too worried about what's going on up here, we can't pick up on all of these things that you're talking about. Yeah, and, and I'll give a little behind the scenes peek of crisis negotiation world. It is not Denzel Washington on his cell phone strutting up and down Fifth Avenue that Hollywood wants you to believe. There are eight of us in that negotiation team, in, in that knock, in, in that room. And although I might be the primary negotiator, I think the most important person on that team is the secondary negotiator, who is the person sitting directly across from me, who's also got a headset on. And their job is to coach me and listen in real time to what's going on. And there isn't anybody in the world that gets to talk to the primary negotiator except for that coach. And it's just like we're doing right now. We're face to face. And the purpose is for exactly what you described, that I got a lot going on. I'm thinking about a lot of things. I'm managing myself to delivery and all this. And I got another pair of ears that's going to catch something that I might miss. So in addition to coaching my delivery and giving me information, you're also there listening in. And it's like, did, did you catch this? And, and you and I have this, this bond right here as we're working. And people say, well, that's kind of unfair. Of course, it's unfair. We're not here to have a fair fight. We're here to save lives and get people through this. Um, but then the question becomes, in the corporate world, how do we bring that same uh, effectiveness to the table? And I'll acknowledge it would be weird if we were having a negotiation and we're at the big table and on the other side of the table, I'm across from you giving you some signals. They're like, hey, who's this guy? That's oh, Scott. He's my uh, negotiation coach. He's just helping me. That would be weird, right? So it comes to how prepared are you? And you said, you know, can we switch this to autopilot? And when we're teaching skills of listening, we go from, all right, this is something that you know, to something that you can do, to who you are. Because if it's something that you know is going to feel real heady, we're going to be going trying to remember all these different strategies and techniques to now it's something that I can do. It's a skill that I have. Once it becomes who you are, now we're on autopilot. So you're not going to get that by Friday in a, a one-week class. You're not going to get that by the end of the year as your first year as an interrogator, detective, negotiator. It takes a while just to get comfortable in this is who I am and how I am. And these are the people who are just lethal. They're just destructive. They come in, they see everything, that they just don't have to manage themselves or spend as much energy managing yourself. And it's cool that you talked about the, the arms crossed uh, pose because I have that picture in one of my classes to say, all right, let's talk about the nonverbals here. And and people, you know, oh well, he looked up to the left. That's a lie. He's got his arms crossed. He shut down. You know, that's cool that you you went you you saw something on your social media feed once about this. But you know, talk to the experts. And um, you know, I'm not sure who you study for body language and behavior. 
Um, I like Joe Navarro. I like Chase Hughes. I like those guys on the behavior panel. I mean, those are my all-star guys. And they'll tell you, you know what? I mean, it could have 11 different meanings. I, for 20 years, wore a duty belt with 25 pounds of stuff around my waist. It, it was weird to have my arms hanging down. So if we're not in this pose right here, we're in this pose right here. So what is the changes? What precipitated that change going in? What's the baseline behavior? And if you're thinking about, hey, my, my listening skills or what question do I need to ask, you miss all of that information. The duty belt's a great example. When I used to work with law enforcement, I would use that. Like I would call guys up front. Sometimes they'd be in uniform. Sometimes they wouldn't. But they would sit in front of me, either kind of bolt upright with their arms crossed or leaning forward with their hands on their hips. It's like, you realize you look like you want to fight me. Maybe you do. Maybe you're not happy I brought you in front of the room. But this is how you comfortably sit. I happen to work enough with law enforcement that I understand that. But now if you're sitting down with somebody who was just victimized, you're trying to get very valuable information so you can go catch the perpetrator and you're sitting in front of them like that. What are they going to tell you? And I'm not picking on right. law enforcement. It's, it's true mm-hmm. in, in all kinds of scenarios. I really believe, and I love the list of people that you just rattled off for the, the body language. Love it. Um, I'm also a big Tim Levine guy. I'm a big David Matsumoto guy. More on the academic yeah. side, but big fan of both of those guys as well. Um, but I feel like the thing that is most often not taught, and the people that you're referencing do teach it, is contextual awareness. People are out there thinking, well, if somebody looks up to the left or right, it means one thing. No. If they scratch their nose, it means one thing. No. If they change their posture, no. It's to your point, what changes, what's the trigger that caused it, and what are they most likely, what does that illustrate they're most likely thinking in the context of the situation? So when people, even criminals, get really good at picking what people are thinking or doing, the choices they want to make, it's because of that situational awareness. It's not... we often, to go back to Cialdini, we often mistake what is causal for what is focal for what is causal. So because I just noticed you crossed your arms, I assume that means how you're feeling. No, that was one indication in a much larger context. I'm focusing on that. So that's what I think it was, but it's really this bigger puzzle. And so many people either refuse to see the bigger puzzle or just because of our own need for mental shortcuts and comfort, just want to go to the fact, well, Scott just leaned over to the left, so he must be angry right now. No, no, (laughs) not at all. And I, I know of at least one person in my world that comes to mind that will verbalize and I don't know what the belief here is, and I will never ask, but will verbalize the the nonverbals that this person just witnessed that oh i saw you do this i i saw this and then do the association while well, you're you're uncomfortable and there there's probably a more a higher percentage in my world than the normal world of people who are reading body language and are attentive to the nonverbals but this one individual will call this out and now it's just going to be a field day for me. Like you have given me permission to have the time of my life because you told me you're reading my body language and you're making conclusions based on what you see. I am going to start, I'm going to start doing things that you have never seen in your life. And I'm going to screw with your mind until you can't take it anymore. Don't give away 
what you're doing. If you think that you have an advantage, you've lost your advantage. You're not showing off to anybody. Ooh, let me get this insight right here. What's it's not about you being so cool. It's about getting to where you want to go. What's your goal? What's the purpose of this interaction? Yes. <laughs> what, what else do I say? People listening would not play poker with their cards facing their opponent. Just leave your wallet on the table and go get a drink. Like you wouldn't do that. So not only am I, if I did that to you, am I now giving you the license to entertain yourself for the duration oh, yeah. of this conversation? I'm now taking away any accurate reads from my toolbox. So I don't have that anymore. And trust and rapport is destroyed because anything that I was doing authentic or manufactured to make it look like we had a relationship in this moment is now gone and I can't get it back. That is, and again, the person who does that probably feels like they've been successful doing it. And to some degree in fairness, maybe they have. So if it ain't all the way broken, don't break it. Okay. But I would beg people not to do that under any circumstances, unless you're just messing with your body at a bar one night. I would never, sure. ever coach and don't do it in front of a girl he's trying to impress or you're going to get in a fight. But I would never encourage doing that to somebody. If we feel like somebody is feeling an emotion and their behavior has leaked that emotion, and we honestly believe that addressing it in the moment can get us somewhere more productive. My recommendation, and take it with as much salt as people want to, and if they feel like something else works better for them, okay, would be not to put the emotion on them, but to speak to the situation. So if all mm -hmm. of a sudden somebody's body language changes and they're showing fear, like they're scared to give me this information, I would never want to say, well, the fact that you just raised your eyebrows out flat and your mouth made the, the expression like you were saying the letter E and you crossed your arms and turned yourself to the side and took a half step back tells me that you're probably pretty scared right now, but you shouldn't be. Actually, you should be because I'm clearly not caring about you. I'm clearly manipulating you. Yeah. So instead, if I recognize that, I, if it was a face-to-face -face conversation, honestly, even if it was Zoom, I would distance myself because I can create safety with space. So I'm going to take mm. half a step back, maybe even half a step off to the side. And then I'm going to speak for lack of a better word in plurals. So it could be Scott, for all of the people we talk with, it's important for us to realize that although our job is to handle crisis, most people have no idea what they're going to feel and how it's going to impact them when they experience it. It's a whole range of emotions are acceptable, including fear. Yeah. And it's important that when we're afraid, we still, and now I have the opportunity to enhance that trust and build that empathy without calling out somebody's behavior or coming across as judgmental. Yeah. You're, you're giving them permission to feel how they feel. You're normalizing that. If I were in this situation, I would probably feel this, this, and this based on what you described and allow them to feel this is normal because they're feeling this is wrong. This is, I'm, I'm being judged. This isn't right. Say, I would be here too. And what a great way to deepen that bond a little bit and to say, I would have that same emotional feeling that you might be having right now without actually saying those words to them. I'm keeping an eye on the clock. I could talk to you for the next two hours easily. So hopefully we have a chance to continue this conversation, but I want to be very respectful of your schedule. And I know the people that are still listening have other things to go do with their day. I'm not arrogant enough to think they want to listen to me talk for another two hours. 
you do so much from your keynote speaking to your workshops, to the content you put out online. And eventually the book, we're all going to get a chance to read. So for the people that are listening to this going, Scott has ideas, material, an approach to how he shares this information that my team and I could potentially capitalize on. Where can they go to learn more about the work that you do and how to contact and access you? Yeah, I appreciate that. So I am a co-founder of a group called the Negotiations Collective, along with my wonderful business partner, Joanna Shea. We offer training classes, keynotes, and advisory work around negotiations and conflict resolution. So as you said earlier, it's my sincere hope that nobody out there is going to be leading a hostage negotiation, but all of us are going to be having difficult conversations. And we have a nice multidisciplinary team that brings this to life through our uh, classes, whether in person or virtual. So check us out at negotiationscollective.com. But we're talking about uh, creating a connection here today. I would much rather just connect with anybody who might be interested. I'm very active on LinkedIn. So feel free to connect with me there. I manage my own account. I'm a real person. Send me a note and I'll get back to you there. Or uh, check out my work as a speaker and some videos at scotttillema.com. And uh, if you want 18 more minutes of me that you didn't get in this last hour, um, I also have a TED Talk out there titled The Secrets of Hostage Negotiators, which is out on YouTube. And you can join the over 1 million people that have got some insights to uh, our difficult conversations and uh, a couple more stories that we didn't even get into here today. Well, hopefully we can engineer an opportunity to get to those at another time. And just to vouch, this is the first time you and I have ever met. So everything you That's said right. about building connections and people can reach out and you can respond. We've sort of, I guess, orbited around each other a little bit mm -hmm. for years. But this is the first real conversation you and I have ever had that started with a simple online conversation. So I will completely vouch for everything that you just said. Um, and I really appreciate it. I appreciate your time. I appreciated everything that you shared today, everything being so actionable, so applicable to so many different conversations and just the way that you approach it and the way that you share your thoughts is so digestible. I really appreciate all of it. Thank you so much. Awesome. And thanks for doing what you do. Love your work. Love your book. I have recommended it to others. Keep at it. We're very aligned in, in this regard. So um, keep doing what you're doing, bring value to others. And thanks for having me on today. I appreciate it. Same to you, my friend. Thank you very much. Stay safe. Take care of yourself. We'll see you soon. All right. Scott, thank you so much for a fantastic conversation. I appreciate all of your experience, all of your insights, so many great teaching points. And hopefully people go back and work through some of those and think through so many of the great ideas. Is something fair? versus is something acceptable. That concept enough should be enough to help us start to do a better job controlling our own motions, considering the context and making better decisions as we're negotiating through agreements. All of your ideas about emotions and questions and listening. Thank you for the conversation about listening. I really appreciate that. Taking the time to shout out one of your mentors in the beginning or the middle of the conversation. Really appreciate all of that. Scott, I know you have a lot going on. Thank you very much for taking the time and joining us today. I truly appreciate and of course, thank all of you for taking the time to listen to the conversation. Again, I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. And I hope you took as many notes as I did during that conversation as well. Scott has so much to offer. 
Thank you. And on our way out, let's thank our sponsors one more time. Humantel. Head over to humantel.com and enter the code INQUASIVE25 for 25% off of all of their best-in-class online training to begin to recognize when people's emotions are changing by reading their facial expressions and body language and understanding what that means for you and the conversations you're having and how to make use of that intelligence once you recognize it. Head over to certifiedinterviewer.com to learn more about the International Association of Interviewers all of their educational opportunities, networking opportunities, and of course, the Certified Forensic Interviewer designation. You can find all of that at CertifiedInterviewer.com. And head over to Inquasive to learn more about the training programs that we are often asked to give to organizations for their leadership teams, their sales and negotiation teams, for their HR teams, to teach them the skills, perspectives, and techniques necessary to encourage people to share sensitive information under vulnerable circumstances in the face of consequences. And if you're enjoying these conversations on listening and communication, you're looking to learn more about the disciplined listening method, you can pick up the book, The Disciplined Listening Method, at Amazon and at Barnes and Nobles as well. Thank you all so much for continuing to join us week after week. We truly do appreciate it. Please take an extra couple seconds, like the show, share the show comment, subscribe, please. And of course, share us your feedback. What would you like to hear more of, less of? Who would you like to see or hear on the show? We would love to hear your feedback so we can integrate it into what we do. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here today. Please stay safe, take care of each other, and we'll see you next time.